A lot of things going on today, and we don't want to, uh, to neglect the fact that the Word needs to be preached in, in truth. And so if you would uh, grab your Bibles, we're going to be looking at various scriptures today. We're going to be floating back and forth a little bit. Last week, we began this sermon series, which will help to broaden our understanding of the two offices that God has instituted in His church to bring leadership, to provide guidance, and to afford instruction to His people. The office of elder, which is also called pastor, shepherd, overseer, is one of those offices. And the office of deacon, which serves as an official dedicated servant to the church, is the second. Now there are four key passages in scripture that directly teach us how to assess a person's heart and readiness so that we might determine whether they should serve as a leader in the New Testament church. Those passages are in Titus chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 3, and 1 Peter chapter 5. Now, Titus, 1 Timothy, and 2 Timothy are a group of, of letters that we call the pastoral epistles. That's a small section of your scripture there near the end. They are written from one elder to another elder. So it's, it's correspondence from leader to leader. So there's some great insight in those letters that help us to determine how to manage the church well and to do a faithful job in leading God's people through the organized body of Christ. Three of our passages are found in those, found in those pastoral letters. Uh, as a circular letter, the book of 1 Peter was not written directly to pastors. It was written to a broader audience. It was to be read in every church in Asia Minor and passed around from congregation to congregation so they might all enjoy the wisdom contained in that correspondence. But there is a, a very specific exhortation that Peter includes in that letter uh, that is for elders, and it is for elders to know how their heart should seek to serve the Lord God. And so these four passages contain detailed descriptions of the kinds of men God would use to lead his church. Many of the descriptions in those passages are repeated in different passages of those four. Some are stated in slightly different ways, but are meant to portray the same meaning. And so for the next two or three Sundays, The more I prepare these sermons, the bigger they're getting. Uh, We're going to be looking at the biblical requirements of of elders and deacons. We want the scripture to inform our understanding of what it means to serve God in this special way. So we're not going to preach directly through these passages verse by verse as I usually want to do. But instead what we're going to do is I've provided this, this sheet for you. And this sheet is going to give you an organized structure of the different characteristics and how they show up in those different four passages of Scripture. And we will bounce from passage to passage to see very small details that are important to understanding and interpretation of those passages. And I hope that that handout will be useful to you. The way it's organized is the first column speaks of the deacon's requirements that's recorded in 1 Timothy 3. And you'll see a vertical line that, that shows from the, uh, to the right. The next three columns describe the requirements of elders, in 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, and in 1 Peter 5. In the deacon column, you might see a few of those characteristics that have a W in a parenthesis. That means that those requirements are asked not only of the deacon himself, but also of that deacon's wife. So there are some things we need to consider about a man's family as well as the man himself when we think about who really should serve in God's church. Uh, There are some differences between these columns, but you're going to see the overall theme is that they're very much so the same. What is demanded of a deacon and what is demanded of an elder in terms of character 
are almost identical, and there is really only a small difference in ability and skill that we're going to talk about when we get into the specifics of elder leadership. So I hope that this, uh, this handout will be helpful to you as we organize our thoughts and as we see how the Scripture as a whole gives us great wisdom on how to proceed in, in affirming and electing people to the office of elder and deacon. But before we dive in, I, I want to give you a challenge. And the challenge is this. It, it would be very easy to think to yourself, well, I have never been personally called to be an elder. God has never put it on my heart to serve as a deacon. And so I, I don't really need to know these things. These aren't really for me so much, so I, I don't really need to be zoned into this. Or it might even be tempting to say, well, I, I'm not a man, and so I'm, you know, there's, there's not men serving in these positions in the church, and so I'm going to leave this up to the guys. I, I don't have to be so focused in. But I really want to challenge you that these requirements are not, in, by and large, skill requirements. They're not training to do jobs or tasks. Rather, what God gives forth to us in His Scripture The people that are to lead the church are people of character. And every one of us who follow Christ should desire to have godly character. We should desire to be the kinds of people that live out the qualities we're going to study in these verses in the next several weeks. And so please do not zone out. If you are reading this and and maybe God never calls you to be an elder or a deacon, knowing these things will prepare you as a responsible church member, to nominate the right people to serve in those regards. It'll help you to to keep us, your elders and deacons, accountable so that if we begin to slip off off of what God has commanded of His people, you might be able to come to us in love and help correct us and help to edify us and sanctify us so that we might become better elders and better deacons. And so this prepares you to help protect your church from men who are not living as they should and yet are serving in leadership capacities or desiring to serve in leadership capacities. And and secondly, they are are good to us. If we can learn to live in some of these same characteristics and to to apply ourselves to growing in these areas, then you would see great and tremendous blessing pour into your life as God makes you to be more like Christ, His Son, who is our ultimate example of, of right living. And so let's pray quickly before we get into the Word. I want the Lord to bless our our understanding today. God, we thank you for bringing us to this place where the Scripture is open before us and we are ready to learn. Father, if there's any anxiety that is keeping us from focus today, I pray that you'd remove it. I ask, Father, that you would slow us down right now and that we would not be caught up in the various overwhelming details of life, but instead we would greatly, with gratefulness, come before your throne and let you teach us. Father, as, as Mary and Martha taught us, Lord, being busy is not what you call us to. Being at your feet to learn and to absorb what you have to give to us is the greater blessing. And so I pray that we would be calm and steady right now as we look at your word and as we meekly apply it to ourselves and to the people who are called to serve in these positions at First Family Church. Please bless all the churches that are preaching your word this morning, God. Lift up every preacher that he might be godly in teaching doctrine that is faithful and true. And may we walk away from this place more excited to love you and serve you with our whole being. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we consider the kind of person that God would have lead his church of first importance should be that person's relationship with Jesus Christ. We should first ask ourselves then, does this man who desires to be an elder, desires to be a deacon, does this man have a true testimony of faith? 
1 Timothy 3, verse 9 says, They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. The answer to that question, does this man have a true testimony in the faith, is, is not a mere formality. We should just not assume that somebody who's trying to be an elder, of course they've got a faith. Of course they believe in Jesus Christ. We should not take that for granted. When the Apostle Paul mentions the mystery of the faith, he's specifically talking about the one true gospel message that we preach. The only truth that has the power to save individuals and wash them clean of the debt of their sins, they might be near to the Lord God. And so well before a man can lead God's church, the Holy Spirit has got to lead him to see with open eyes the gravity and weight of his own personal sin. No man should ever enter into the pulpit. No man should ever serve in an official capacity at God's church without first having seen how serious his own error is towards his God. When we sin, we don't just sin against one another. Truth belongs to the Lord. And so when we break the commands of Scripture, we are literally rebelling against the Lord God. And it is not until we see how serious that truly is that a holy and perfect and pure God cannot have close and loving fellowship with rebellious and wicked-hearted people like ourselves that we see how serious we need salvation, how desperately we are uh, in a position of, of need before the Lord God. So before a man can serve as a minister or as a deacon, he has to realize that he is powerless to overcome his own wicked heart. That there is nothing in him that if he just musters up enough courage or discipline or dedication that can cause him to overcome the weight of his sin and make him holy before the Lord God. So we must, the first lesson in leadership is that we are not ready to lead. Is that we do not have what it takes to be kings in this world. We do not have what it takes to govern others and to direct others' paths, but rather we need the intervention of the one true king. When a man sees the weight of his sin and then recognizes that there is no effort he can put forth to eradicate that sin and to cancel out the debt he owes to God, then that will point him towards God's solution. He needs to know that Jesus is God the Father's answer to his sin dilemma. And he must be happy to submit himself to the leadership of God's Son. When we become Christians, friends, we do not just agree mentally with good things that we, we believe to be true, but rather we take everything that we are, the very essence of our being, and we lay it before the Lord's throne and say, God, I am a broken man. Lord, I am a shattered woman. I can see how much I have offended you. And I can see because you are holy and good and pure that I deserve your wrath because of my sin. I also see, Lord God, that I cannot overcome this failure myself. But I've also been made to know by your Holy Spirit that you have intervened in my life. You have sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to take on a, a physical body, to live a perfect life in a way that I couldn't live, and that he was willing because of love to give that perfect life as a sacrifice for me. God, I give you my broken life, Take it and use it as you wish. I submit myself to your lordship in my life. I want to follow you, God. Make me new. Before a man could ever hope to lead someone else, he must be led first by the Lord God. And this man who hopes to lead others must first himself rejoice in the understanding that that very same Jesus who gave his life on the cross has risen according to the scripture and is reigning over his 
kingdom from heaven above. This Lord is still Lord, and he reigns in our hearts. That relationship with God that can only come through Jesus Christ is fundamental to good godly leadership. It is terrifying in many ways then, friends, to consider that there are men leading churches around the world who are dynamic speakers, who are exceptional administrators, strategic planners, gifted motivators, but who have not humbly come before the cross of Jesus Christ and given their lives over to him. And some do not even realize it. The more that the gospel message is replaced in America and in other places in the world by a politically correct invitation to just come and be blessed by a higher power, the more people preach that as the gospel and fail to point out the gravity of sin and fail to point out our need for repentance, the more we're going to have people who say, wow, I like God because God likes me. I'm a Christian. And then they grow up in environments where that is taught all the time and they don't see the full gospel. And so then they become mature adults and they think, well, I I like being blessed by God. I'm going to serve him in his church. Yet so many of these men who want to be leaders don't even grasp themselves what a great sacrifice has been made for them. They don't see their need for repentance and absolute, utter dependence on the Lord Jesus. So some are serving. They're doing their best. They don't know why. They're struggling. And it's because they don't even yet know Christ themselves because such a false gospel is being preached so prolifically throughout the world. But others know full well that they are not saved. The church in Corinth had some men who were preaching a different gospel than Paul was preaching. You can read about it in chapter 11. They wanted to be leaders, but they were leading people in their own direction. And there are people throughout the world who see church as a way to satisfy their desire for power and authority or for attention and affection from people. And the scripture makes it clear to us that we must be aware of it. Look at 2 Corinthians 11, 12, or 13 rather, through 15. It says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also, meaning Satan's servants, disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. I don't say this to put terror in your hearts, but we must be aware of the threat that was real even in the earliest days of the church, and we have been warned will continue to be real so long as the gospel is preached in the fallen world. People who are not believers will try to infiltrate God's flock so that the sheep can come, become for them resources rather than brothers and sisters. So a biblical leader must be faithful to the mystery of the gospel. He clings to it with a clear conscience. That's an interesting phrasing there, but I, I think it has so much deep meaning. The gospel is a mysterious thing. It is something we must enter into by faith. It is not a clinical, scientific uh, equation that we just come to understand and memorize. Instead, the gospel is the powerful truth that God reigns on high and reveals himself to man, often in mysterious ways, often in ways that don't match our human sensibilities. 
And so we must cling to that gospel, which is mysterious, and we must do so with a clear conscience. This means that the man who leads in God's church must believe that the gospel is true to his core, in his heart, in his mind, in his soul. Whether or not everybody else in the whole world thinks it's a fairy tale, this man who leads in God's church must be convinced to the core that what God has done to save us is real and true. His conscience is clear because the gospel is not to him some social game that he has committed himself to play along with others who are playing it. This mystery is not a concoction of man or a means to a moral end. It is the very substance of his reality. And without the revelation and intervention of God, he realizes that he too would be blind to it. And so he needs day in and day out, for the Holy Spirit to continue to reveal this truth to him, to make him see it plainly and accurately. A godly leader is not just faithful to mystery in general, but to this mystery, the mystery of the gospel. A man must be much more than just a spiritual person. I've met several individuals who count themselves as a spiritual people but their spirituality does not match in any real way the gospel that has been revealed through scriptures. And so the man who wants to serve in God's church must be more than just a spiritual, deep philosophical thinker. They must be something whose spirit is captivated by the true gospel recorded in God's word. His faithfulness to the mystery of the gospel is marked by a faithfulness to the scripture that has revealed it, to his word. Titus 1.9 says, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he might be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So the faith of a godly leader, it cannot be eccentric. Do you understand what I mean by that? That means it can't just be his own personal gospel. It cannot be his own personal interpretation of Scripture. He must let the truths that God has revealed to us govern his view of God and conform his life to God's will. There is an orthodoxy to the ministry of the man who wants to lead in God's church. There there have been several individuals who have gained great popularity over recent years because they were different than everybody else. Because there was something spicy about them, something unique, something that caught people's eyes. Wow, they preach, but they don't do it like everybody else. They preach, but the things they talk about are edgier. They're a little more, oh, they're different than what I hear in church. And sometimes these individuals gain a great following. And many people think they've grabbed onto something special because they've grabbed onto a man who has ideas that don't match the ideas of other people. But friends, the leaders you should trust are not the people who are so creative that they can, they can build for you a new kind of gospel or a shiny, different faith system that's like Christianity, might be called Christianity, but is actually unique from the scriptures. Rather, we should be grateful to find men who love the traditional good word that God has given to us that he told us would never be corrupted, that would never fade or fail. So the men that we follow in church should be men who aren't trying to blaze a new trail and make a name for themselves. They are to be men who trust the revealed word of God to be the power that it promises to be. And they preach that to you. 
They don't get up here to show you their view on things or their take, but rather they are there to just simply reveal to you God's take on the Scripture. The Word is trustworthy and it is true. The people who minister to the Word have not always followed it faithfully. I understand that. So there have been times when the Word was used to justify ungodliness. But that is a problem with people, not with the book. When a person misuses the book, we must address that. But in order to be led rightly, you must be led by people who honor the Scriptures that God has given to us. The faith of the man who leads the church should allow himself and his ministry to be defined by the Scripture, not the other way around. Remember the words of 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20-21, through 21, where the apostle says, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Friends, the reason we love this book and the reason why it is a shelter to us is because this does not come from the sinful heart of people. God has used flawed individuals like us to record His perfect and pure words in the pages of this revelation. And so trust the man who trusts the book. A godly man who is ready to serve must be firmly tethered to it and must not be easily led away from it. An important byproduct of that sincere faith and respect for God's Word is that he is going to love what is good. He is going to love what is good. Titus 1.8 describes him as a phlagathon. And that's a Greek word that means a companion of that which is noble and true and holy. He loves to be around the goodness of God. He loves to pursue the right things that God has revealed to his people. The person who leads must have a desire and a passion for the things of God. And you don't always see that, do you? Some people are intellectually well-versed in Scripture, but there is not really a desire for the things of the Lord. The, the verse that we find in James chapter 2 that, that always stops me in my tracks. When I, begin, when I begin to come too academic and when I begin to just let the Lord stay in my mind and not really rest in my heart, I think about James 2.19, where he says, You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe, and they shudder. What does that mean? That means that there are wicked powers of darkness who believe that God is real. They know that he is true, but that knowledge, that intellectual understanding has brought them no closer to a right relationship with the Lord God. And so the man who leads us the men who come together as elders, the men who serves as a dedicated deacon in the church must have a great love for the things of God. This man's testimony must be much more than an intellectual agreement that makes sense. It must demonstrate that he has an obvious affection for what the Spirit has helped him to believe. Does this guy naturally lead conversations to Christ? When you're talking about A, does he see how that connects to Jesus and take it to Jesus? instead of just being content to speak about regular everyday matters? Are the interests that he pursues compatible with Christ? Is he a pastor that seems to care more about his jet skis or his hunting hobby? Or is he a man that is first and foremost enthralled by the things of the Lord? He might have some other 
interests and some other minor passions, but is he majoring on Christ in all ways? And do you see that priority laid out in the way that he orders his life, in the way that he spends his resources, in the way that he speaks to others about what is important to him? Does he pursue the scripture? And is he reading literature that has to do with God's revelation? Is that something he desires? Is he listening to podcasts? Is he seeking sermons himself? Or is he content to just preach to you? Is his heart's desire to be refined and sanctified into a more godly man? That requires humility, doesn't it? A man who loves the good recognizes that he's not always good and longs for God to make him better than he is. And one more aspect of his confession of faith, this man who would serve as a leader in God's church must not be a new convert, having been tested and proved up to the task. 1 Timothy 3.6 says, He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Enthusiasm does not always equate to readiness, friends. The Apostle Paul, having received a dramatic calling to ministry, do you remember how he came to trust Christ? He started life as one who was a Pharisee, entrenched in the ways of Judaism, dedicated to the Old Testament Scripture, but at first ignorant to the fact that God had fulfilled those Old Testament Scriptures in the man Jesus Christ, his son. And so Saul originally persecuted the church, condemned Christians to prison and even to death, until Jesus Christ appeared to him visibly and spoke to him in a real way, causing him to stop and reassess his whole life. And this man, Paul, who would go on to be perhaps the greatest apostle ever, the greatest missionary that this world has seen, did not jump right into ministry. Did you know that? He did not immediately plant a church. He did not immediately begin to assemble around him sub-disciples that would help him in his cause. No, instead, the Apostle Paul, according to Galatians, went for three years and studied Scripture. He went and prepared his heart. He went to make sure that he understood how Jesus Christ, his life and ministry, was the fulfillment of the things that were written in the Old Testament Scriptures. He was not intent on being a new convert and then suddenly leading the church. Instead, he wanted to test his own heart. He wanted to go and be trained. He wanted to understand the word better so that he would be ready for the task at hand. Time reveals the sincerity of a man's confessions. Many can fake a calling for a time, but time tends to reveal the truth. I think this is in part because of what we learn in the book of Proverbs chapter 4 where it says that the heart is the wellspring of life, so we should guard it fervently. That means that what you truly love and care about, you won't be able to keep hidden inside. If you really, really, really love baseball, that's what you're going to talk about with people. When you get together with people, you're, you're inevitably going to gravitate towards that. It's going to be what is on your mind and on your heart. It's going to be on your apps on your phone. You're going to have sports apps and you're going to be checking out your team all the time. But if your heart and soul is committed first and foremost to the Lord Jesus Christ, then your sincerity is going to come out. That heart for Christ 
is going to bubble out of your life and you're going to see the evidence of it. The consistent testimony of Christ in me to those who want to serve God gives us confidence that the man who would lead is a man who is truly led by him, is truly seeking the guidance and the instruction of Jesus Christ, led through seasons of blessing, but also led through seasons of trial, led through times of setback and hurt, led by the Savior long after the newness of the gospel has been replaced with a kind of constancy and normalcy. The man who truly loves the Lord is going to follow Jesus even when the buzz of faith is not strong. He continues to follow. Even though his faith in Christ costs him dearly, he will not turn away. Some of his unbelieving friends and family have stopped tolerating his zeal and so they don't talk to him anymore. They've turned their back on him, but he won't turn his back on Christ because he won't stop loving what he truly loves. It comes out of him naturally. He cannot help himself. Bless you. These are traits that we see over time, friends. The new believer has not had the chance to demonstrate how he will respond to these kind of conditions. It's helpful to have some kind of track record that we can look back on and and say responsibly, I have confidence that this man has testified to the truth of Jesus and that having put his hand to the plow of ministry, he will not turn back. We're warned that this is important because if we allow a new man to the faith to minister as a leader in God's church, even if he accidentally does well, even if he has tremendous natural skill that causes him to be a a good leader that gathers people to himself and is influential and causes growth amongst those who are under him, a new believer is likely to what? Fall into the sin of pride, thinking that they have accomplished this because their short season of trusting Christ has not proved to them enough yet how dependent they are on Jesus. Every victory is only a victory because Christ causes it to be so. And so we don't want to rush anyone into the service of deacon or elder because we want to give them an opportunity to get the training that they need and to to be tested by life. Of those who serve as deacons, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.10, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves to be blameless. Now, blameless does not mean perfect here, but it means Uh, someone who lives in such a way that it is not easy to rebuke them. They don't have uh, some knock against them that could easily be criticized by others who doubt their ability to serve in that position. And so as you consider whether a person's been tested, there are some specific things to look for. First of all, does that man follow other leaders well? Is he intent to come alongside someone who has more experience than him or has been given greater authority than him? And does he gladly and with grace receive that man's instruction. He who does not know how to follow ought not to lead in the house of God. Jesus was himself exceptional at following the Father, wasn't he? And that's amazing to me, that God in the flesh, who has all knowledge, who is perfect and completely without sin, says again and again in the book of John, he says, I can only give to you what the Father gives to me. I can only tell you the thing that the Father reveals to me, which indicates to us that Jesus is living obediently, even though he is God Almighty in flesh. He is showing us this wonderful example of biblical leadership, how it's not just about leading others, 
but it's about letting your heart be led as well. Is the person who desires to be an elder or a deacon, is he willing to engage in volunteer ministries? Will he take on some responsibilities that require time and attention from him? And does he then handle those responsibilities with respect and with joy? It's not enough to just do what is asked of you, but do you really enjoy loving the Lord so much that when a responsibility is placed on your shoulders, that you, you, you accept that with a smile and you apply yourself, not because you hope to receive something back as the Pharisees did when they fasted or when they prayed loudly in the public places, but you desire to serve God simply for the blessing of serving God, of doing something good for the one who's done something so good for you. Is that how this man serves? Do they seek to grow from their experiences? When they stumble and fall and fail, how do they respond to that? Do they immediately begin to justify themselves or to create excuses for their failures or shortcomings? Or do they simply stand back with humility and say, wow, I could have done that better. Do they receive instruction from people who are more experienced and say, I'd, I'd like to consider that. I want to pray over those things and see if I can perhaps do it better like that next time. You know, when we go through a series at a church, church life is like ebbs and flows all the time, isn't it? And there have been times in our church where we didn't baptize anybody for a long time, and I find myself struggling. Why aren't we baptizing people? Why aren't people coming to know the Lord here? And in those times, I've got to ask myself, but what have we as a people, what have we learned through this season? Are we growing as a people? Are we depending on Christ more? Are we better equipped to the task? Because though people aren't getting saved, perhaps this is a time when God is maturing us and, and, and readying us for the next season of ministry. Are we more faithful as a result of our exposure to the Word and life's opportunities to live the Word out? So even when a person fails, we can see evidence that they are ready for doing gospel ministry if they receive that failure with grace and they seek the Lord's Word for correction and guidance. And is that service to God that these people desire to have and that we test them in? Is it following the pattern of God's Word? Or is it following the trends of man? Are they constantly wanting to do what people do, even if what people do doesn't match what God has called us to do? Do they exhibit a courage in the, in the obedience that they have to Scripture, knowing that if they just do what the Word says, they'll be okay? God will be with them and near to them if they simply stay with the testimony of His Scripture. These are all ways that men are tested and proven either ready or not quite yet ready to minister as leaders in God's church. I'd like to get into another section here, but we are getting close to 10.30 and it's Mother's Day, and I don't want to overwhelm you. If I start, I will want to finish, and it's going to take me a good 15 or 20 minutes to get the next section done. So we're in no rush. We want the Word of God to settle deeply into our hearts and to affect us in a way that we will receive it and live it out. So um, this is the first of, of many sections of Scripture we're going to be looking at that help us to understand what it means to follow God and to lead others into following God as well. I pray that it is a blessing to you. I pray that um, as we think about these things, that we apply them to our own lives as well. Even if you are not called to one of these two distinct positions, in the weeks to come, you're going to see that these commands do apply to you, that they do matter to the way you stand before God and the way that God ministers specifically in your life. Because every Christian is on some kind of mission for the Lord. 
Every part of the body plays its function, its part. And we don't want to overlook the fact that God perhaps could even use this series that is about elders and deacons to minister to you and to prepare you for the mission field that he has set you upon. Let's take a moment, friends, to pray and to thank the Lord God for his word. And then we'll uh, sing together and be dismissed. God, we thank you for all that you provide for us. And we ask, Lord, that we would receive it humbly. I, uh, I do ask, Lord God, that as we go forth into the world today and we spend time hopefully with our mothers and we give them a call, uh, that you would give us a, a renewed sense of gratitude for them, that we would understand the, the amazing impact they have had on our lives and on our well-being. I pray, Lord God, that you would uh, give us a great respect for your fatherhood in our life as well, Lord God. Those who have given their lives to you and surrendered themselves to you are now a part of your family. And so family matters to you, Lord God. If there is anybody in this place today who does not trust you yet as Savior, I ask that they would come and see me or that they would seek out one of the elders here or talk to the person who brought them to church today and ask, what does it mean to truly be a Christian, to truly follow? We would love to let today be the day of salvation for someone here who is hearing this gospel message and perhaps understanding it for the first time thanks to the Holy Spirit. God, we rejoice in, in all things that you give to us. We even rejoice in the things that you hold back from us. We know that you are a good God. Help us to trust you more and more each day. And we pray these things in the wonderful name of the Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.